Hello, and welcome to the Economist Intelligence Unit's Digital Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Swaby. This podcast is sponsored by DXC, an independent IT services company that specialises in digital transformation. We thank them for their support. So far in this series, we've spoken about how the internet has accelerated the exchange of goods and of money, but if there's one thing that transmits online like no other, it's ideas. Today, the internet is not just a medium of cultural exchange, but arguably the dominant force in shaping contemporary culture. Music, TV, even the way we talk to each other have all been turned on their heads by digitization. One of the most exciting facets of this digitization of culture is the apparent acceleration of international cultural exchange. While once the internet was primarily a vessel for transmitting Western culture to the rest of the world, there have recently been some conspicuous examples of more multilateral exchange of ideas. These include the global success of Korean pop music, aided in no small part by YouTube, and the popularity of foreign language TV shows on Netflix. This phenomenon is only likely to increase as ever more of the world's population comes online and begins to express themselves. Where is this digitization of global culture taking us? How is the internet changing the way in which youth culture spreads around the world? And what, if anything, does this mean for business? To explore these questions and more, I'm joined this month by Cathy Sheehan, Senior Vice President at Cassandra, a market insights company specializing in millennials and Generation Z, by Ravi Gavada, Head of Market Research at co-working and hotel startup Selena, and by Peter Chonka, a lecturer in global digital cultures at King's College London. I started our conversation by asking Cathy, why should businesses care about culture, and youth culture in particular, and how it is shaped? I think there's three really broad reasons why businesses should be caring about culture. And the first is the changing relationship we're seeing between consumers and brands. And that is that people today, um, we're operating in an environment where there's a real erosion of trust in a lot of the larger institutions in our society, such as, you know, government and larger social institutions. And as a result, this, um, I think, is providing an opportunity for brands in many cases to help fill that void of that er kind of um, erosion that we see. And indeed, people are looking to brands um, and expecting brands to help them in various aspects of their lives. They expect brands to have values. They expect brands to be um, transparent. Um, so they're looking towards brands to take this role. We see a lot of, you know, parity in terms of the products um, and services that are being provided. So the way in which to really break out of the pack and distinguish yourself is really what do you represent as a brand. So I think the first reason we should be paying attention to culture is that um, brands are really inherently linked into our, uh, into our culture, and the consumer expectation is getting higher and higher in terms of the role that um, brands want to play. The second reason is, you know, not only culture, but in particular, why youth culture? And um, so we study youth and have been studying youth for a really long time. And there's two reasons we do this. One is, you know, a lot of our clients and marketers are marketing to youth and they want to understand what's important to them and how to really reach that target market and, and speak to them away in a very authentic way in which that resonates with that consumer. So that's certainly important. But I think even more importantly is that, you know, youth are our early majority and they're our window into understanding the future. So what's happening in the youth space today those are where the trends start, and that's where 
where we're going to see kind of the general market evolve and move because we're seeing that many of the the things that are nascent now in the youth market are going to kind of explode when they hit the general market. And you mentioned there that Cassandra researches um, uh, youth trends and youth culture. Um, what does that research tell you about the way the internet influences youth culture, and in particular, uh, the, the topic of today's discussion, the, the sort of global spread of, of ideas and, and culture? Well, certainly, I think it's one of those things that is um, bringing young people together. Um, and we see that a lot of the trends, I mean, the digital world is operating trends and ideas spread so much faster than they ever have because of technology. And, you know, we often talk about youth as being our digital natives, right? So they're the ones who are leading on that connectivity. And um, really, we're seeing things spread faster than they ever have, and also in a more fluid way. So if you think about, you know, a generation ago, in many cases, a lot of the trends started in developed economies. And it might be something that, you know, kind of takes a while to reach, you know, other markets. Now what we see is that there is a democratization that's coming with technology. And a lot of those trends are um, you know, pervasive around the globe. And you think about, you know, the smartphone and how that is a tool that um, people all over the world have access to. Great. So from digital natives to uh, digital nomads, uh, Ravi, Selena is, is a, a hotel company, but you cater in particular, um, among other markets, to, to digital nomads, these people who uh, take, uh, take advantage of the fact that um, much work that is done today, much digital-related work can be done from anywhere in the world, and they take mm -hmm. that opportunity to, to travel and see the world as they work. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about these people who are digital nomads? Uh, where do they come from? And what do you think drives the adoption of this lifestyle? Great. I think if we just talk about it more generally, just take a step back, uh, generally the work population is moving more to a remote-friendly uh, culture, a lot more professionals don't need to be in the office 24-7 in terms of the amount of time they're spending with their job. A lot more companies are adopting remote work days as part of uh, benefits that they're giving to their employees, as well as outside of that, you have more people who are working in a freelance capacity or taking on multiple different roles uh, to make a living. So this allows for people to work and not needing to necessarily live in the place that their company is even headquartered in. This type of uh, environment really allows people to then explore and choose other ways to live. If you think about the US, you have uh, Latin America nearby. A lot of countries share similar time zones to the US um, and allow you to have a much lower cost of living when it comes to rent and anything else, allowing you to improve your quality of life with the same type of salary. Digital nomads in general started as a phenomenon throughout Western Europe and the US in terms of people looking to improve their quality of life. Uh, but the other trend that really speaks to this is also the fact that millennials and younger generations are also choosing to desire uh, experiences more so than just uh, consumer items. There's many surveys out there. There's one done by Eventbrite, I believe, recently that said 78% of millennials that they surveyed would rather have a desirable experience than to have a commodity or an item that they purchase with that same money. There are also studies talking about Gen Z, you know, the population looking at going straight from school rather than jumping directly into a job after college 
choosing to take a gap year to not only explore and travel and uh, consume other experiences in different in different countries, but also to learn more about themselves and sort of re-engage and really uh, connect in a more offline sort of non-digital way. This also relates to the trend that we have, you know, generally with digital media consumption, social media consumption. There's a lot of touch points that we have with the world, as you had mentioned, that give you an idea of global trends, global consumption patterns that are out there that everyone is aware of based on, you know, what they're seeing on Instagram or Twitter or anything else like that. In terms of where these people are now, definitely, as I mentioned, they're mostly in the Western Hemisphere in terms of countries. Average age is a little bit north of 30. I think it's about 35, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but this is continually growing. What we're seeing is that you're starting to see more digital nomads as the strength of economies uh, in other markets, such as Latin America and Africa, are improving. You're seeing more people having the ability from an earning spending power to travel more frequently. And you're also seeing plane tickets and airfare and other cost inhibitors that used to be there reducing in price. So there's a lower barrier to entry, more people able to uh, spend for travel and experiences, and also a larger appetite globally for this. You mentioned a bit there about how your target audience is, is drawing its influences and its taste from the internet, but I wonder if you could expand on that. Uh, how do you see the internet shaping what your customers want to experience in your properties, where they want to travel in order to, uh, to experience and, and as they work? Uh, and to what extent do you track trends on the, uh, on the internet in order to anticipate uh, what people are going to want next? Right. So a lot of it is really based on, I think, uh, Kathy mentioned it, authenticity, looking for authentic experiences. Um, the way we design our properties is really to localize them. So even though we're a global and fast expanding uh, hotel brand, we do not have a standardized model, meaning we don't have exactly the same type of F&B or restaurant layout or bar that we have in every single restaurant. Even our lobbies can be different. Some, some of them are like sawed apart cars and buses that turned into a lobby. Um, but there obviously are standards. But the reason why we localize is really to create more of a connection, not just for travelers who are seeking for these experiences, but also locals who live in these uh, cities or these you know towns, villages, surf destinations, that they feel at home in this type of location. And then on the other end, what we've seen is going back to the connections aspect and really people trying to understand more about themselves, uh, develop on online but also offline experiences. What we've seen is that social media, even though it connects people in a very literal way, it also isolates people. And there is a huge feeling of loneliness out there. There's some studies that have mentioned nearly half of the U.S. population feel some sense of loneliness when it comes to uh, just their general, you know, personal life outside of social media. And that could mean lack of friends, you know, not having the right type of connections in your working environment. And if you couple that with also the increasing trend of people working remotely, freelance, and sort of working, let's say, more independently or laptop, you know, war road warrior type people, um, there's a huge convergence of people needing to go somewhere to connect and feel human experiences. And that's really what we're drawing from and really what we're focusing on in terms of the uh, experiences that we want to create in our spaces. Actually, our corporate mission is to develop meaningful and authentic uh, connections. Um, and we even give post-stay surveys for guests to fill out. And that's one of our questions is, have you made a friend on your stay? I'd like to talk, bring Peter in now. You bring a very different perspective to this conversation. 
your work looks at the influence of digital technology on youth culture in Africa and in particular in Somalia. Can you paint us a picture of how young Somalis use digital technology and the role it plays in their lives? Sure, thanks. Um, I guess to start off that, that sort of discussion, I, I think it's interesting to think about our, what we were talking about with Ravi and, and, and this idea of the digital nomad. And just to point out that the, um, the first time that I was doing research in, in, in the Horn of Africa in Somalia, sort of about when I was living there about 10 years ago, the first kind of advert uh, commercial that I saw for um, an internet service provider um, providing mobile internet actually featured real nomads. And so, and that was 10 years ago. And um, um, a lot has changed um, in the part of, in this part of the world where I do research. Um, and again, this is a part of the world that, you know, has, has um, been, um, most people would assume has fairly low internet connectivity. And if you look at the official statistics from someone like, you know, the World Bank um, just a couple of years ago would say that, you know, in, in Somalia, um, uh, there's sort of 2% of the world of the population are connected to the internet. Now, I mean, firstly, there are, there's lots of problems in, in, in validating those statistics and gathering those data. Um, and, and that's probably very out of date, actually, um, at the moment, when you look at the very significant and rapid um, increases in kind of internet penetration in society and people, particularly young people, particularly in cities um, with uh, access to, uh, to smartphones and, and mobile internet. And I mean, the other related sort of phenomenon here is, is very rapid urbanization. So there are more people in cities, more people coming to live in cities and then um, more access to this kind of connectivity and technology. It doesn't mean that digital divides don't exist. They, they absolutely do. Um, but the statistics go out of date very, very uh, quickly and connectivity is really increasing. Um, and so to kind of paint a picture about um digital media use amongst young people in, in, in this part of the world. The first thing to, to point out is that, that, that people are connected, but particularly, you know, the trend was from, from internet cafes and the internet cafe, as in many parts of, of Africa um, and, and arguably the so-called global south has really been sort of superseded by the influx of, of smartphones and, and, and potentially affordable um, smartphones. So, you know, younger generations are increasingly online and they're increasingly on, on social social media platforms and you know a platform like Facebook for example is pretty much you know ubiquitous it is the everyday of you know a large proportion of people who have access to this technology you know in 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 cities in Somalia or Somaliland and sort of the wider um, Horn of Africa and so yeah these these um, produce um, all kind and facilitate all kinds of um, connections um, on the ground um, in this part of the world. But I guess the other thing that's really important to kind of highlight here is the fact that um, populations, the Somali population um, has always been very mobile. Um, and there, you know, uh, the links that are important here are between what's happening on the ground in, in, in cities and economies in the Horn of Africa and the connections with very um, long established diaspora communities of Somalis living um, all over the world, in Europe, in North America, um, in, in, in the Gulf states, uh, in certain parts of Asia, um, etc. And so, 
yeah, I mean, the diaspora community and diaspora investors um, were really important in the development of ICT infrastructure in this part of the world. Um, and they're really important in terms of the content and the connections and the cultural influences that go you know, back and forth between these communities and, and the Horn of Africa. Great. So, so turning to youth culture in particular, how is this, um, you paint a picture of a very rapidly digitizing culture. How so far has this changed the, the, maybe the flow of culture, the, the influx of outward influences of global culture uh, among Somali young people? Um, I mean, as I said, I mean, I think, you know, the, the global Somali community and, and this part of the world, you know, have long standing historical kind of globalized uh, connections. But I think, you know, the rise of ICT and social media, you know, intensify a lot of these um, flows and, and maybe diversify them um, as well. And I think, you know, we see I was speaking about the um, the influence that comes from the Somali diaspora, which is quite diverse around different parts of the world. And obviously we have kind of Western um, influences and ideas that 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 flow um, from Western popular culture, but then also kind of mediated that come through um, diaspora communities who are connected, who are moving back and forth between um, uh, areas outside of the region and back into the the Horn of Africa, and then the huge um, influence of connections to the the Islamic world, um, the, the 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 Middle East and the, the parts of the world again where there might be significant diaspora populations but where kind of a globalized um, uh, Islamic culture is kind of um, feeding into um, what's going on and the kind of debates um, that people have on the ground in in the Horn of Africa about what Somali culture is and and how it should be expressed and and and, and these kind of things so one of the cultural uh, trends that inspired I guess inspired the idea for this podcast and, and strikes me as uh, remarkable is is the conspicuous popularity of, of South Korean culture in, in, in the youth, in, in youth culture in the West, as far as I understand. Uh, it, it, can't be a, it can't be a coincidence that South Korea is, is uh, almost always rated as the most connected society, the most advanced uh, users of the internet. Kathy, do you think this is a one-off or, or is this a, a sign of things to come? Yeah, I think it's definitely a sign of things to come. So a generation ago, for a young person in the United States to hear about BTS, they probably would have, you know, had a, a friend or a family member who had traveled to Korea and maybe by chance that person had heard of them. And then, you know, maybe they, you know, s smuggle back a tape to and share it with their friends. And that would have, you know, pretty much been the extent of, of that, you know, cultural exchange. And, you know, today, obviously, it's an entirely different story. Um, but I don't think this is a one-off. I think that, you know, young people, we talked about how they are seeking community, they're seeking authenticity. I think they are also seeking, um, we talked a little bit about experiences as well. And I think this all the, the, you know, the South Korean pop music and what we're seeing um, in the health and beauty arena and cosmetics with South Korea, I think it all kind of speaks to this notion of, of how we are really open, increasingly open to new ideas and new thinking and new products. 
Um, and we're actually seeking them out. We're looking for kind of the new and unique. And, you know, today South Korea has provided a lot of that. That doesn't mean that, you know, two years down the road, we're going to be talking about another band from, you know, perhaps Somalia. Um, so I think it speaks to, you know, um, that that we're in an environment where the culture exchange is a lot more fluid than it has ever been. And so, as you mentioned, your clients are marketers. As a, a marketing professional, let's say I'm at a multinational uh, company, what should I think about this, this uh, increased global flow of ideas and tastes, especially in youth culture? Uh, what does that mean for me as a marketer? Does that mean that I should be building global brands, uh, trying to create something that is recognized everywhere in the world, or, or, or not? What, what would you say? Yeah, I think it's um, it's both a combination of global and local. And um, so going back to the fluidity of information and transparency, I think for a global brand, it is ever more important to make sure that your brand pillars uh, and your brand experience is has a level of consistency across the globe. So if you are known for standing for um, a specific value, you have to hold that value globally. So there has to be a overarching brand value that is consistent across the globe. But what I want to do is speak to a point that Ravi made before about the importance of localization as well. So I think this this actually makes it way more complex for um, for, for brands because yes, you have to have a overarching global narrative. But you also have to be very sensitive to the the nuances in a specific market. Um, and this is a, a question we get a lot from our clients in terms of, you know, how do I represent my global DNA in different markets? And the way you articulate it might be quite different in each market because of the culture, because of the communication style, because of the, you know, the sophistication of the media channels in that market. So certainly there is a lot of work to be done to make sure that, um, you know, a, a brand of a multinational company is um, addressing their local market. But it is also really important to have a strong brand pillar or brand DNA that is something that uh, represents a consistency across the globe. Peter, how do, how do you think about this relationship between local and global cultures in, in the areas that you studied? Does, does global influence uh, and the adoption of global cultures make somewhere less local? Is that even a, a, a possibility? It's a complicated question when you look at the various different influences that that kind of come to bear um, in different in different settings. Um, I mean, it, 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 there's lots of debates on the ground. Um, the the whole idea of what kind of local culture is, like Somali culture, for example, on the ground in the Horn of Africa, is itself a really kind of hotly debated um, topic, right? So nobody's, you know, we, we, we shouldn't kind of fall into the trap of thinking that, you know, local cultures are fixed and everyone's kind of clear on what that is. And then there are these external elements. And that goes back to kind of longer histories of globalization and trade and, you know, and, and these kind of things. So, so for example, you know, if you think about the, the, the role of, of Islam in, 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 uh, in local culture, you know, some people would argue that, you know, more sort of conservative um, taste 
tastes and interpretations of, of, of Islam um, are so kind of a foreign influence that comes through through media and, and migration into somewhere like the Somali Horn of Africa, which, you know, universally and, you know, for a very long history um, is, a, is an Islamic part of the world. So some people would say that that's, you know, a foreign import. And then other people would say that, you know, well, the diaspora, people are coming back from the West with kind of socially liberal attitudes, and that's a, a foreign import. So, I mean, all of that is, you know, that these kind of lead to these debates on the ground about what actually is um, um, local culture uh, to, to to start with. And so, you know, I think, you know, going back to this idea of, of, of different kind of cultural products that find their home in, in different markets. I mean, I don't necessarily think that K-pop has made uh, big waves in, um, in the Horn of Africa yet. Um, but, you know, there are lots of other different types of kind of um, uh, international cultural products, you know, ranging from, you know, Indian Bollywood to, you know, Turkish soap operas that are a big part of the kind of um, media scene. So it's, you know, the, the, this is this is highly globalized, but the main points of reference might not necessarily always be, uh, be the West. And I think, you know, how international content gets received and adapted itself has a lot to do with the conditions on the ground and different aspects of that that are seen to be kind of acceptable or attractive to people in those in those in those contexts so it's so it's a complicated mix of, of lots of different influences but I don't I don't really see it in terms of kind of a homogenization okay great you mentioned there that that there's a temptation to see the cultures in developing uh, countries as the sort of passive recipients of Western culture via the internet surely that's not not the whole story or even even any of the story are there examples that you can point to of um, uh, African cultures using the opportunity of the internet to project their values, project their culture, maybe change the way they are seen in the world as opposed mm. to just receive input from elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think actually this relates quite a lot to the discussions that we've been having about, you know, what's culturally acceptable and adapting brands and, and images to particular markets. Because I think the fundamental point here is that when broadcasters, when um, marketers, when, when companies get it wrong, um, there's an increasing capacity of people on the ground all over the world to speak back very directly and sometimes in very great numbers to, you know, um, to tell uh, people what is being done wrong. And this can, you know, create serious issues, um, you know, for companies, for brands, etc. And, and we see this, you know, across the African continent. I mean, um, a, a really good example of this, if you look back to 2015 um, and you looked at... Um, uh, there was a hashtag that kind of emerged in, in Kenya. Kenyans are very big Twitter users. Um, the hashtag was hashtag someone tell CNN, which re referenced directly um, that news network's coverage of Obama's visit to uh, to Kenya at that time, describing kind of Kenya as a, a hotbed of, of terror, um, which was a very problematic description of, of, a, of, a, of a dynamic and diverse country like, like Kenya. And, and people were very... Um, um, uh, capable and uh, of, of using this hashtag and using the kind of affordances of new media to speak back very directly to that broadcaster and force an apology um, from them. Um, and so I think that's one aspect of this that shows the, the importance from, from audiences, from consumers um, to really be able to engage with brands. And I think that's, uh, that's something that you know, marketers um, uh, have, to, have to really take on board and, and, and think about. 
Cathy, your work uh, involves the study of, of millennials and Generation Z, as we say it over here in the UK. Um, uh, and as we all know and as we all hear, a, a lot is spoken about the supposed values and, and desires of millennials and the, and the coming Generation Z. What would you say is the biggest misconception about these, these um, communities uh, with, with respect to their use of the internet in their cultural lives? Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that technology is the the sole discriminator and, and driver of a lot of the trends that we're talking about. And um, certainly technology is a huge part of what we see in terms of um, you know, how trends are spreading and, and how people are communicating. But I think sometimes we, we lose um, some of the, the nuances when we just, uh, you know, hang our hat on, on just talking about technology. And I think there are other um, drivers that when I look out at looking at global youth trends that in some ways are just as important and even more fundamental in terms of what we see, you know, driving attitudes and behaviors. And I think Peter mentioned this slightly uh, a few moments ago when he talked about urbanization. Um, so if we think about, you know, the trend or the, the, the force of urbanization around the globe, um, that has a lot to do with some of the fluidity of trends that we're talking about as well. Thank you. Uh, uh, Peter, what are the biggest misconceptions about uh, the cultural use of digital technology in Africa? Um, I mean, related to, to what we were talking about earlier, I mean, I think the biggest misconceptions are the idea that um, uh, people in, across, across different countries in Africa are simply kind of passive recipients um, of technology that comes from um, the West or, or East Asia, and they're not innovating with this technology. And that's, and that's, and that's simply not true. I mean, if you look at different contexts and, and different circumstances that are generated in, in different contexts, then we see new kind of needs and new adaptations of, um, of mobile technology, of internet technology, you know, the, the kinds of innovations in mobile money, um, for example, that I was, I was talking about um, earlier. And I think the other, the other misconception is this idea that, you know, um, internet and globalization has suddenly, you know, connected large parts of the world that were previously isolated and somehow kind of outside of, of history or, or global trends. And that, and again, that's also not true. You know, mobility, uh, transnational connections in the particular context that I study have very, very long histories. And, and new media technologies, you know, um, affect some of these dynamics and intensify some of of these um, flows, um, but global connections um, have always been important, and they've always had a kind of bearing on on debates about kind of local um, culture and, and hybridity and and all of these kind of all these kind of things. So those I would say would the kind of be the biggest misconceptions I'd point to here. Great, thank you, Peter, Kathy, and Ravi. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EIU Digital Economy Podcast. Thanks again to our sponsors, DXC, an independent IT services company that specializes in digital transformation. If you haven't already done so, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. Tune in next time when we'll be discussing the digitization of healthcare. <laughs>